Escape from plan A. These ladies, they're so nice. You know, they make you feel like it's all about you and customer service. You know, whatever you lie, we do for you. As soon as I walk in, they greet me right away. Hi, honey, what you need today? Um, can I get my nails done? Okay, honey, do you lie, pedicure too? Okay, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. So today it's me, Teen, and I've got Jess. Jess, how's it going? It's going okay. It's bright and sunny in California. Yeah, it's finally like the thaw has broken in New York, and but like the first nice day, I've got I've tweaked my ankle, so I'm like stuck at home podcasting. So oh no, uh, we'll you weren't ready for it. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally, no, I I keep tweaking my ankle. I'm getting it's, it's like old man tweaks. It's not even anything cool. Like I, you know, I went for the fast break and I <laughs> and I tweaked. No, nah, I just woke up and my ankle hurt. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's really sad. Uh, okay. So yeah, so you, you and you had recently watched a movie that I think has the reaction to this movie, which is, uh, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs has been super interesting to me. Um, because, you know, I, I watched the movie. I loved it. I understand the issue of cultural appropriation and the use the sort of free use of Asian and Japanese imagery and storytelling by a white director. But the the split, you know, the movie's like almost 95% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's considered one of his masterpieces, I would say, right? But the Asian-American reaction, particularly by women, I would say, um, there's a number of Asian female uh, cultural bloggers and critics who have come out and have taken a really, really... Uh, sort of negative stance on on the issue of cultural appropriation, and I've never seen it stronger than in this movie. So I just wanted to kind of break it down because I feel like we both like the movie, but I wanted to kind of go over like why was the reaction so strong? It's a beautifully done movie. <clears throat> it's it survives on its own just as a as a visual work of art, right? For sure. And it's there's a meticulous there's a meticulousness and actually like humor to the design and the set pieces um, that I think was a, was remarkable in its own way. And mm-hmm. I know we talk about, I, I know people have critiqued it for its appropriation, but I actually think this was one of the more respectful takes on it. It very, it very much showed an appreciation for, you know, uh, Kurosawa, you know, the Japanese greats, the art form, but it's also, it was stop motion, right? Yeah. It was. That's also a very, uh, that's actually a Western um, animation style. Yeah, yes, I think so. I mean, they've used it. I think the Japanese have used it in some of the monster movies. Right. But um mm. yeah, for as but as set pieces and props and, you know, uh special effects uh back in the day. But stop motion animation mm-hmm. as a as a field is primarily, you know, it's actually British, I think. Uh with is it? Okay. Uh, some Ameri- mm-hmm. yeah, with some American uh elements. So I thought it was an interesting adaptation mm-hmm. of the medium to reflect kind of I mean, it's it's an American director uh, using British animation techniques. Like it's very skilled stop motion animation to bring to life yeah. uh, Japanese imagery. So just just visually, it was it was stunning, and it's there was a there was a actual like humanity to it too. Like the little details were pretty mm-hmm. funny if you think about it. like mm-hmm. they t- like the uh, the shots of newscasters when they zoom back. They're all prim and proper from the uh, from the desk up, but you see that they're wearing house yeah. slippers. Did you catch that? Underneath, 
No, yeah. I didn't. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like little details like that. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, stuff that what is like very Asian, not in the Orientalist, you know, fantasy, but an actual closer to the actual lived experience of what what it must be like in day to day to live in Japan day to day. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is very much like to me a co-production, even though in America we think of it as an American movie. And I think that's where the problems start is almost every single critique that uh, uh, of this movie that I've read, both white and Asian American, is this. I think Richard Brody said it most straightforward in The New Yorker. He said, you know, in this movie, Japan is nothing but a mirror America. I mean, he just says that without any support. And he says, this has nothing to do with real life Japan. And, you know, aside from the details being so good and seemingly authentic, I thought the story was very much centered around Japan and, you know, Japanese politics and Japanese, the Japanese, you know, um, uh, political moment than it was anything to do with America. Like everyone who tried to read something about American, you know, Islam, Islamophobia or Trump's xenophobia towards Mexicans or whatever, I think it just didn't make any sense to me that that's what this movie was getting at. This was about Japanese people, fundamentally speaking, I think. Well, there is a reading of the movie where it is about us, but it's a critique. And you have you have to put yourself in the position of the Japanese in order to be able to read that critique of America. So the lens goes in a lot of different ways. I, I really appreciate the use of perspective in the movie, not not to, not in the sense of like the visual lay- layout, but in terms of who you as the viewer are supposed to be at any given moment in this narrative. Uh, for one, you're you are supposed to be a foreigner looking at Japan, but there's also a lens pointed back at you as the American. So I think you're spot on in in that. It is a critique of American military presence. I think that that oh my god the that ending scene with uh, Atari's uh, apocalyptic warning speech. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this the the uh, the uh, the mushroom cloud and the rising sun. Uh yeah, it's uh it's it's pretty freaking clear. And the positioning of spots, all the burned corpses falling down yeah. into the yep. ro- onto the steps that lead up to that. Yeah. It was really on the nose and then, you know, this I watched it twice actually. The second time, I really started picking up more on that that scene where there's this there's this character called Major Domo who is sort of like this really old Almost like a emperor Palpatine type character. Palpatine. Palpatine. Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna r- get ripped apart if you get that wrong. Pal- <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's gonna be the thing that brings you down on this pod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this major domo guy is like to me he represented this sort of archetype. I mean, I think a lot of this movie is about archetypes, right? It's not about really individual fleshed out characters, which is why people may think of it as othering, right? It's not really about personal characters, personal details, the humanity of the... It's very much about archetypes. Speaking of archetypes, I think one particular archetype that has become... that has been raised a few times as being really kind of a problem is that character of Tracy Walker, who's the white female... uh, She's American, right? I think from Cincinnati. Blonde-haired with a fro, freckles, very pale skin... And she plays a, an American foreign exchange student in uh, Japan. She kind of finds her way into the very center of this entire thing, of the center of the movie. And I got the feeling like a lot of the really negative reaction, I got the feeling like it might be around her. Did you have like a reaction to her at all? 
Oh my god, my blood start my blood pressure started rising the the instant she walked in on on the movie. It was just playbook. This is she's the uh embodiment of I wouldn't say the stereotype of Asians. Oh, the embodiment of white attitudes towards Asians. I wouldn't say it's not as blatant as, you know, the the commonly trotted out stereotypes about us. But in actual lived experience, how she treats the characters in the movie, in my experience, replicates how uh, how we're treated in daily life, right? It's not it's not about being okay. you know considered like an easy prostitute or something, right? Especially as an Asian woman on a day to day basis, that's not what's going mm-hmm. on. The reality of it, though, is uh, white women in particular, I think, uh, assuming dominance over the situation. It's an unquestioned assumption, too. Right. That regardless of uh, the competence or intelligence or even, you know, um, <clears throat> the rank of uh, the, the parties in in question here, that when push comes to shove, they will be the ones to save the day. That is absolutely how... That's the natural order of things. There is also this... Yeah, I agree. I, I sense that not only that, but that in this movie, you know, her American is showing through in this kind of like irreverent, you know, I will not be contained. I will not be, sh- you know, I will be not, not be shut down. I'm going to make everything that I believe and think heard and felt that there was... Um, it was celebrated as a kind of... Uh, uh, as a kind of virtue that's maybe missing in Asian women, right? Like... That, you know, we would have to, like, the Japanese, in particular the Japanese women, and there's one scene we should talk about, but Japanese women should learn from this trait of American women that would be, you know, good for everyone, good for Japan, good for Asian women, if they could be more like Tracy. Right. You know, and it really comes to a head in this one particular scene that even I, as an Asian guy, watching it, I was kind of like, oh, shit, this is not good. Like, that one scene did bother me a lot. Um, and it's, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's the bar scene, right? Yeah. That one moment. I, I mean, that, 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 that entire scene just starts off so pathetic with a uh, Yoko Ono, by the way, an, an Asian woman character named Yoko Ono voiced by Yoko Ono. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I, I you see her just, she's just a fucking mess, right? She's just sobbing into her endless yeah. cups of sake uh, just yeah. all sallow and looking like a half a corpse and just yeah. so weak and pathetic and has no idea, has given up all hope and, you know, doesn't know what to do, you know, uh, mm-hmm. was apparently sitting on the cure this entire freaking time, right? It was just stored in the socket. Yeah, it was fridge. sitting in the fridge, right? But yeah. she's like, oh, shit, no, I guess. She's just a fucking mess. And then in comes this, uh... This blonde Afro girl with purpose in her eyes and determination and willpower yeah. and, you know, full personhood and knowing what the right thing to do is. And it comes on mm-hmm. in and just takes over the situation, like just about nearly does everything but slap her in the face. She slaps a drink out of her hand, I think. Slaps a drink out of her hand, like actually like sh- picks, like grabs her shirt or I think, and starts shaking her. Yeah. And then at some point, you know, there's a there's a confrontation right there, a, a moment of conflict, and then finally Yoko is like, "This is the one. She's gonna t- she's gonna lead us to the promised land." And like, hey, yeah, give her yeah. the serum, and they pull it out from the the serum the the sake fridge, and then she gets officially, you know, I guess that's the moment when leadership has officially passed on to to Tracy, and she can go. She's mm-hmm. got what she needs to go save the day. Yoko Ono in this case is pretty much the only like Asian female character of any importance in the movie. 
And she's yeah. not even that important, I would say, right? Um, she's she's mourning the loss of her boss, who's this Japanese man who was in the uh, sort of the liberal opposition party, you know, kind of pro-dog party. He's seen as kind of heroic in a way, right? He dies for his cause. He's courageously standing up to this fiery right-wing bully. He gets killed for it. You know, she's this assistant to her, to him. She has inherited all of his knowledge about, you know, the 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 sort of like machinations and and, and all the corruption behind this, and sits there and does nothing but cry into a drink. And but later, there's no there's no salvation for her. Yeah, there's absolutely no vindication. Like she is a scientist herself, right? Uh, that's how she's right. presented in the movie. So you know, if you think about the implications of that. Uh, she's a highly competent person, basically the right-hand woman to the, the main scientist guy. So probably a very competent, intelligent person who deserves credit for this in, this invention that's going to turn shit around, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. then ultimately used as a prop. That's ultimately her value, to support the a white girl's A prop with no class. redemption. Like, everyone else gets yeah. redeemed, and then even Tracy kind of has this sort of, like, straight march to uh, glory where... She's sort of almost like doing this sort of, um, you know, after everything gets solved, right? Like she and Atari, who's now the mayor of Megasaki, they're they're kind of doing like this victory tour. And she's literally wearing, the, Tracy is literally wearing a kimono made of American flags. It's shocking to me. And she's now like basically what, like the first lady of Japan is kind of like what, what that's saying, right? It, it It's blatant. That's, that's the thing. It's so yeah. uh, no holds barred. But wrapped mm-hmm. in a in a message, uh, it's there's a lot of layers you have to unpack before you get to it. Kind of like a Japanese cake, like a Lady M cake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the Tracy character and the and the way that and the Yoko Ono character, how that plays any any Asian woman who like I've saw that instantly, right? I've had my work stolen. I've had the credit taken from me. Like credit, like standing up for myself doesn't do shit at that point. Because it's like, well, mm-hmm. of course she or he, white person, uh, got the credit for it. Why would you? You're here to give them what they need to get credit for this shit. I felt that that scene, uh, I mean, and I'm just speculating here, but I felt that that scene was really relevant to why so many Asian Americans are decrying this movie. I felt that the cultural appropriation argument just doesn't really ring that true to me in this movie. It, it I didn't have a problem with it because they, like you said, and I, which I agree, is like they really took a lot of care with this stuff. They weren't abusing or otherwise fucking it up. They, 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 they had, you know, a lot of consultants, a lot of like co-producers and stuff on it to make sure it was right. I felt like the real heart of that objection came from that. I, th- I felt it came down to the characterization of Asian women. Um, they're mostly irrelevant and, uh, you know, in this case, and in that one particular case, just totally subservient and there's a certain patheticness to it. But I don't know why that didn't come out more directly. And one thing that I noticed was like there was a there was a um, New Yorker article by a younger Japanese American woman named Moko Fuji who was born in Japan. I thought rightfully said, you know, everyone's got it wrong. This movie is very much about Japan. I grew up in Japan. I can tell you why. But then she specifically uh, singles out uh, a Slate podcast um, where they had Inku Kang, who's a Korean American woman, uh, come on and sort of give a dissenting opinion of this movie where she just totally hated it. And the, they were kind of pitting, you know, they're kind of using to me the ethnic credentials of this Moko Fuji who has, let's say, better ethnic credentials to, 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 to say something about Isle of Dogs. And Inku Kang was kind of talking about 
you know the you know the culture the I didn't think she was making a very uh, articulate case against this movie because I felt she was dancing around the fundamental the fundamental problem of this movie that made her like viscerally hate it. Yeah, I don't think she gets why she hates it. You don't think she gets it, or you don't think she feels like it's worth like she's it's something she can say in a podcast because it's too self serving or something. I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell, right, from from where we stand mm-hmm. on this. But that entire podcast was dominated by the other two hosts of that. She just pops in to say, you know, yuck, right, or ew, or and then mm-hmm. just that random throwaway uh, comment about the casual misogyny of the movie being the only authentically Asian thing about it. Which is like, get mm-hmm. the fuck out yeah. of here. What, what the hell are you talking right. about? I don't think she got... And then towards the end, like, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I burst out laughing because, uh, you know, the, the other two hosts are really trying to get to why she doesn't like this movie so much. And then it just mm-hmm. comes out that she wanted, she was kind of hoping this was more of a Pixar movie. Right. Like, I just wanted more dogs, more cute dogs. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, she says at some point, like, she's like, I thought this movie was made for me, you yeah. know, and I thought that was really telling because it's like, yeah, I, you know, I feel like this, uh, how do I put it? Like, I feel like a lot of Asian Americans were just cut out of the process because it's not relevant to, it's not really an Asian American movie, right? It's, it's got nothing to do with Asian Americans per se, right? This is something that's about the direct relationship between America and Japan. So it's kind of got to go to the source, so to speak, on both. And what do we what do we know that means, right? That means on the American side, it's going straight to white attitudes, white people, white militarism, white women. You know, like it's not Asian Americans have nothing to do with this movie. Asians are very far like it's very much about like Japanese and American. And it has nothing to do with like Asian Americans. I feel like there is a there is a part of us that tends to want to center ourselves in anything involving some sort of exchange between the two between america and asia and in this case like it just cut Amer- asian americans out altogether like we had nothing to do with it we weren't voicing any of the, like I f- there were almost like no asian american or, or zero asian american voice actors in this that's true yeah I, I i felt like the disappointment or the anger over it was just not being relevant to this movie um and which case there you know i mean this might be an unpopular opinion but in which case we have this reflexive tendency to say it's cultural appropriation. I, I mean, the heart of appropriation is uh, when something is taken without credit being due, being returned, right? Or when the creator is cut out of the uh, the process. So in this case, if you feel like you own Asian, the, the Asian aspect of this movie, and you feel like you don't see yourself reflected back up there, then I guess it would count as appropriation. It feels that way, right? Because we're so used to being so relevant to anything that involves, you know, oh, it's an American movie, but about Japan or using Japan, Japanese imagery. Like we've, we've trained ourselves almost to be outraged at this stuff to the point, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be, I'm just saying like, we've so trained ourselves to make that the narrative that it completely closes ourselves off to like any further interpretation of what's going on. Because I think what's really going on in this movie, which by the way, I wrote that the article about and cinemaescapist.com has been republishing some of our articles. Great website, cinemaescapist.com. Go read it. It's very good. Your life will change. Yeah, it's all about international film and the, you know, sort of the global context in which, you know, international films are made. I, I really like their perspective. Um, is 
that, you know, if we make everything about media representation, everything about, you know, oh, was this Asian character fully fleshed out, fully three-dimensional? Does it represent us as human beings? Like, it'll just, I think it just, not that that's not a valid thing, but it's like, that really starts to cut us off from, like, other perspectives that may be of more interest. And if we're not honest about, like, why something pisses us off, like, if we're really inarticulate about why we hate something, I think we just fail to have that conversation. And, like, definitely one of these conversations is the degree to which white women and Asian women, I think, have these conflicts. It's never, it's rarely talked about, but you and I and others, we've talked about this dynamic more. It's not something that, like, Asian guys really know that much about. Well, with the with feminism being the uh, cri du corps of the day... There's the assumption that you are selling out the sisterhood if you have beef with another woman. At least while men are watching. Uh, I see. Right? So you're incentivized mm. to pretend until that pretense becomes completely untenable. But you will make it work for a very, very long time to your own detriment. Isn't that a kind of female tribalism in a way? It, it's, it's female tribalism. It's also the way female relationships are set up to work, whether that's biological or, you know, um, like, or social. Uh, who knows? Probably mm. some, some part, some element of both. But female relationships are supposed to be based on uh, compatibility, right? On getting along, right? Yeah. And we've talked about this yeah. before, but I feel like, like one of the things I kind of envy when I watch guy-guy relationships, you know, uh, start and mature is that conflict seems more accepted. It's more baked into the fabric of male bonding. Right. Uh, so there's a there's that 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 socially acceptable buffer space between you and mm-hmm. you know say another guy to you know give each other shit kind of kind of kind of force a minor amount of confrontation like completely socially mediated uh, confrontation that the other guy picks up on, gives you some shit back, you know, and then you kind of work it out in that that buffer space and then mm-hmm. increase that bond. For women, it's you have to pretend that that buffer space doesn't exist. You're supposed to be mm-hmm. sisters, best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're supposed to get along and, you're, and you love everything about her and everything is fantastic and wonderful. That's not true. But now we have no socially acceptable space to mediate conflict. So it becomes so we act like we we are super friends until a major crisis at which point we've always been enemies. And that's a stereotype of women, right? Like we'll all we're we're all friends friendly with each other and then you know we turn around and we backstab, right? Right. And we right. when uh, when a confrontation happens, we've somehow always hated her, mm-hmm. right? And it makes us look two-faced and fl- and whimsical and uh, and flaky, right? But there's a mm-hmm. there's a there's an actual real reason this behavior plays out this way. Probably mm-hmm. we've had conflict with this person for a very long time. We've to some extent always hated her, but there was no acceptable mm-hmm. way to work that difference out. Like by giving mm-hmm. her shit and getting shit back and and kind of like calling calling each other assholes or something and then kind of using that 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 buffer space to work it out. I see what you're saying because I've seen like you know I would want to I I, I want to try and chalk this up towards some larger, like, you know, um, larger feeling of, like, political allegiance to oppose patriarchy, which doesn't ha- really have, like, a male equivalent, right? But on the other hand, like, I do feel like there's just something basically social about this because I have noticed, like, through my life that when you see two men get into a conflict, there's something natural about it. There's something, like, almost – not. I don't want to say there's something um, – I mean, it can turn bad, but, like, a lot of times it's just seen as, like, 
that's this is what happens. These guys are going to have a conflict, right? And uh, kind of people step back and give them space to do it, and you know whatever. I feel like when two women have a conflict like this, and it spills out into like a public into into some kind of public confrontation, there does seem to be like this communal sense of like loss of face, loss of like dignity almost. It's almost seen to me, unfortunately, as this loss of dignity that these two women would get into something like a fight in public and it's unbecoming of women, you know, and it it just sets up this really awful, uh, to me, like a very awful feeling of like a, a loss of public decency when really it's just two women having a conflict. I feel like there's this intense pressure for women to not fight. And I, I've yeah. never understood why, even though I can feel it and I feel bad for the women when they get into a conflict. And I'm just now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, why shouldn't they be allowed to have a conflict and not have that seen as really ugly or really distasteful? You know what I mean? It's seen as a failure. It is. If guys are, you know, if guys are having a, a confrontation uh, at any level, right, like verbal or maybe even physical, right? We even have the social space to to understand male physical conflict, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, they're just, they're just guys, they'll work it out, they'll come back in for a beer when they're done, you know, like, we, we understand this interaction. Or, like, like we if two men are fighting, then we are in, incentivized to think there's a legitimate reason for this fight. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Whereas if women are in a conflict, A, there's there's a sense of lack of legitimacy. Like, oh, they're, you know, yes. bitches. Yes. Right? It's a cat fight. Something right. stupid. Somebody, it's somebody a cat fight. The same exactly. It's just a stupid cat fight. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a sense of illegitimacy, but also that they have failed as women by having the situation mm-hmm. escalate to this point. You are no longer good women. Um, and honestly, we need that. And I think it makes it difficult for women to have proper conflicts, right? Because you're, it's always... Yeah. Th- the conflict just shades back into, oh, we're just being unbecoming or like, you know, like this is... We should not be doing this. Yeah. And in, in trying to mediate conflict without that... that we fall into the stereotypes of us by men, right? Mm-hmm. That's this is the yeah. this is the petty passive aggressiveness, the silent treatment. Uh, all of that is just survival mechanisms that you have to deploy because, well, a it is very real that you are having a very real conflict with this person who happens to be female, and you just have to find some way around it. I sensed that this was happening a little bit in that Slate podcast, which I you know if anyone's interested in this, I do recommend it. It's just it's the Slate Culture Gabfest podcast about Isle of Dogs, and it's two it's a a white woman and a white man. The white woman really Dana Stevens figures more into it than the than the white man does, and I felt like there was a conflict kind of brewing between the two of them that both of them understood could not be let out into the surface, and so there were there was like coded stuff where, you know, there there was. Uh, an attempt at a give and take between the two, but clearly she knew, Inku Kang knew, that the white perspective here was dominant. And there was little she could do about that, short of, like, a public confrontation over it. Like, she didn't want to say, you know, I felt that that Tracy character was everything that was wrong with white women. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. And I think, I didn't think of that, but it makes a lot of sense, uh, given my read mm-hmm. of the uh, the podcast as well, but then I can't I can't understand why she would uh, turn the knife back on basically her own in that situation. I mean Dana Stevens I think was the one who laid out uh, her problems with the uh, the Tracy character right and um, yeah and she lays out you know she was really irritated that there was a romance angle to this that ultimately you know her principles and everything kind of played second fiddle to. Uh, 
her crush on Atari. She just wanted the guy mm-hmm. and was willing to do what mm-hmm. it took to yeah. get him. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and so it doesn't call it by, by doesn't call it misogyny, right? But uh, critiquing it on the same uh, line of critique that other female characters in other uh, movies get by always being subservient to like a romantic interest of some sort, even if she's the active agent in this. Uh, and then mm-hmm. Inku jumps in by saying, yeah, the, the casual misogyny of the movie is the only legit Asian thing about it. And it's like, uh, did you have to go down that particular lane in, in tagging along mm-hmm. with that critique? Like, why, why did you go there? I, I felt that that was a, a moment of sort of like, let's let's just bridge this gap. I felt like it was a, you know, I think this, ha- maybe this is what happens. I have no idea. You know, there is a, there is a because the conflict is not, something that you could do like a, a an Asian woman and a white woman cannot have a public disagreement on a podcast. It's just, there's no known template for that. You have to find a way out, you know? And I feel like what is essentially a racial conflict, it's like Asian woman was treated like shit by a white woman. and No one's saying anything about this. Well, we can kind of agree that there is a sexist angle to this, right? That of course the white male male like emphasis on male director did not see that the treatment of an asian woman in this way is really insensitive to women asian women but emphasis on women and so you can take what's i think like a gender specific race conflict and get out of it by turning it into like a generalized gender conflict but it's still essentially like a racial conflict and we just never get to it like we can't get to that conflict where to me the Asian women, white women dynamic is just nothing. It's not known. But I tell you what, like, I've never heard white women in my life, in, you know, my friends, my work. I've never really heard them say anything nice about Asian women, to be honest. Oh, yeah, they're not going to. I don't think they feel it at all. I think, you know, we did, um, I did a pod with like, with Oxford on that show Girls and Lena Dunham and, and all these like shows with white women who write in Asian characters, both men, men and women. Asian men and Asian women. And the Asian women, I think he noted, the Asian men are usually portrayed as sort of harmless love interests, right? Like kind of in the background and a bit subservient to the white women, but, you know, they make us attractive and overall positive vibe or whatever. I mean, they're set up as the model man. Asian men in those in those interpretations are set up to be like the man of the future, right? This urbane, intelligent, mm-hmm. cultivated person without the... Uh, that animal, like the harsh edges of, you know, white male patriarchy, right? Right, right. As a more civilized man. That's that's the framing for that. Yeah. A feminist friendly man for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas women are kind of reduced to animalistic caricatures, right? Catty, uh, petty, uh, subservient. Uh, think- Social climbing. Basically, yeah. yeah. Listen, so yeah, we talked, like if anyone's curious, we, we it's the one that, um, Austria and I did on the show Girls. It's a few episodes back, but he was he was picking up on this pattern that I thought was really interesting. And yeah, it 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 really is something that I've picked up on. Is like yeah, the the relationship between white women and Asian women are not. It's not friendly. It's not like all roses. And I thought it came out on that podcast really well. The the Slate podcast in this sort of like uh, low key, low grade, but sort of festering you know, just inability for them to understand that they need to have a racial conflict. And, you know, I felt like that Moko Fuji article in New Yorker is of another layer to that conflict where to the extent that what New Yorker publishes is largely a choice by white men or elite liberal men, let's say, 
because uh, I know that the uh, the online editor is actually an Asian American, Michael Lua, right? Um, but that the New Yorker went and found someone who's younger and better ethnically credentialed. She comes out right in the beginning and kind of says, like, I was born in Japan. I was raised there, so I know what I'm talking about. And everyone's got this wrong. There's a lot of people out. She didn't, I don't think she said Asian American specifically. Maybe she did. But she was like, there's a lot of complaints over, you know, the the cultural appropriation of this movie or whatever. And then she's like, and I put in my earphones and I listened to the Slate podcast and then quotes Inku Kang as saying, yuck, yawn. Basically like being very dismissive of Inku Kang's um, objections to this movie, which admittedly were not the most articulate. But the fact that Fuji like focuses on Inku Kang as representing this fundamentally wrong opinion that you know, Isle of Dogs isn't about Japan or is not authentically Japanese, to me is utter bullshit because by far of all, you know, and I did a lot of research for the um, the article that I wrote, was by far the most straight, like just upfront about this being a movie entirely about America and having, quote, nothing to do with Japan was Richard Brody, who wrote in the same magazine, right? He wrote in The New Yorker. That was his review for The New Yorker. So if Fuji's criticism was that this movie is actually about Japan and critics have it wrong, she should have been taking issue with Richard Brody, a white man, you know, but she singles out Inku Kang for representing this entire misreading of the film. And I don't think that that was what even Inku Kang was standing for. I don't think at any point she said, yes, this movie has nothing to do with Japan, you know, like that, that point was made much more straightforward by Richard Brody, but she took on Inku Kang. And I felt like what that was, was using the ethnic credentials that she brings to the table to sort of sideline Asian American women and saying, you know, you, your your opinions are, I think she called them old and tired opinions, you know, familiar gripes, I think is the yeah. phrase that she used. And I just felt like that's just pity. It was the New Yorker pitting, using an Asian woman to sideline other Asian women because they like this Asian woman's interpretation, which is, I have no problem with white directors using Japanese imagery in this way. You know, it just, I just felt like it was so much using ethnicity to leverage against Asian women. And I found it really disingenuous. Hmm, that's an interesting angle. Um, for one thing, I mean, there's a lot of layers to that particular interaction, right? And who knows what the actual intentionality behind it was. Uh, but one, it's a Japanese American, well, uh, a Japanese American woman talking, dismissing a Korean American woman's take on this and retrenching on her own credentials, right? I am Japanese. I have lived there. Um, is there an age gap, a sizable age gap between the two? Yes, there is. I think Inku Kang, I don't know how old she is, but, uh, mo I, I, I gather she's in like her mid late thirties, uh, maybe, maybe older, but Moko Fuji's like 22. You know, oh. she's very young. Oh, okay. So, and and, they're, and they keep coming back to this. Like, if you read her article, which I do recommend, it's in The New Yorker, uh, Fuji with two eyes, F-U-J-I-I. She keeps saying, like, familiar gripes. Like, you know, like, they have long been saying this. Like, basically saying, like, this is old shit. This is what old people say. This is what old Asian Americans say. I'm like the new, you know, this is the new thing. And it, that part of it, the ageism and also like this, like, I'm more Asian than you kind of thing kind of bothered me. But maybe she's right. I don't know. I mean, fundamentally, I do agree with Fuji that this was a movie about Japan. Uh, I'm just I'm just kind of and so I don't fault Fuji 
you know. Yeah, I don't either. And honestly, I read that review and it resonated a lot with me. It did. Uh, yeah, I mean, me I mean, I I do think the Asian American critique falling back on cultural appropriation was, uh, I think, for this movie was emblematic of that that approaches shortcomings that create harping mm-hmm. on this created a blind spot that these reviewers were not able to overcome and taking a look at this movie with a seriously critical eye. Harping on the cultural appropriation means you stopped at the first layer of packaging. You judged this movie by the cardboard box it was shipped in. Yes. Right? You were not yeah. able to no, unpack it. Totally. Because once you saw that it was appropriate, it's, it's Wes Anderson, uh, you know, making models of sushi and putting it up on the screen. Mm. Uh, you see that Japanese pe- the Japanese dialogue does not get translated while the dogs get, you know, top-billed American male actors voiced to them. Mm-hmm. You stop there, you've missed the entire movie, basically. So I think Fuji was correct. But I don't, I can't, bl- it's hard to blame them though, right? Like in a way, I, I am sympathetic because like, first of all, that scene was fucked up, the one that we talked about at the bar. But then also like, guess who's in this one? Scarlett Johansson is the, you know, is Nutmeg the dog. Like, and I think a lot, there were some people from Lost in Translation that were uh, in this movie as well. And well, I mean, her, of course. Bill Murray, yeah. Bill Murray, her, and then the Japanese, the, the Japanese guy, I think he plays um, Kobayashi. Right. Oh, he was in okay. Lost in Translation. And then the script writer, the screenwriter was um, Sofia Coppola, her brother. Right. So her brother wrote the screenplay. So this was very much like a Lost in Translation kind of thing. It's that same crew that's been going around sort of associating themselves with sort of, you know, Japanese image or Japanese culture, but utterly cutting out Asian Americans from the process. I got to say, I don't really I myself don't have a big problem with that because I don't know why. I, I don't see myself as an Asian American being this bridge between America and Asia, at least not in a social realm. Like, I don't play that role so sh- like out in public, right? And I never felt like we sh- need to. I think it's an expectation from these reviewers that, that, that they're internalizing an external pressure on them to act as that bridge. Mm-hmm. So you see that, like, kind of taking themselves out of the equation, but then getting mad that they aren't part of it. Right. So I never, I never walked into this movie expecting to see myself, right? We're not, we're not, we're not fully Asian. We're not fully American. That I'm cut out of this feels entirely mm. correct. That it's an Asian that it uses Asian cultural artifacts does not mean that that belongs to me, right? I think there's a false sense of ownership on this, or that, or that we even care, honestly. Like, yeah, you know what? Do I, I don't really have. I think if it, I, I mean, I care to the extent that there's racism in it, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt that there were definitely elements of racism in it, particularly towards Asian women, and that part I do care about. But I, I don't see like that, you know, Asian Americans have need to fill that role of like, yeah, everything needs to go through us. You know, and yeah, I think the more not. we That's, do that, the more we kind of... I want to play, pre- take us out of that. I did right. not like that so many of these... Uh, I appreciate the sentiment, honestly. Um, but right. like all these publications putting Asian American uh, reviewers up to bat to talk about this movie. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that puts the Asian American in in question here in a in a really tricky position, because you know that when you get that assignment, you're you're you know, uh, you're an Asian American, and your editor says, hey, you know, I love dogs, so I am white as fuck, so I I I, I think you should be the one to write this. You kind of know what that signal is. You are being told to act as that bridge between both worlds here, mm-hmm. and you know, there's that reflexive. Uh, dislike for batting for either side 
Right. right? It's it feels wrong to say, yeah, America, fuck yeah. And also it also feels incorrect to say, yeah, this is this is thoroughly Japanese, right? Especially like a lot of these reviewers are not Japanese Americans. They're like Korean Americans or Chinese, right? right, right. Uh, so it's not like we have particular ownership over these Japanese artifacts. I was watching those sushi scenes with the eyes of a foreigner, right? I was fascinated by it. And I mm-hmm. thought it was lovingly done, but ultimately, it's not like yeah, that's totally how that's that's totally how my you know sushi chef uncle does it. You know, like there's no personal right, yeah, exactly. connection to yeah. it. Right. Um, that, so that I, said, though, you know, when you're talking about the sushi. It kind of does raise this point, and like maybe we could talk about it this later after you finish the series. But like, the, isn't that kind of what David Chang is doing in Ugly Delicious? Like, he is standing up for Asian cuisine broadly, especially J- Japanese cuisine, as he was trained in Japan, and he's Korean American. I think he was born in in the U.S. I don't see there isn't there some difference then, or some like what we've been talking about about. How or what I brought up, Asian Americans kind of not needing us to center ourselves between, you know, America and Asia. But what about this issue of food and food appropriation? How angry we get when we see white people, you know, going directly to Asia, training there, coming back and saying like, oh, I'm Mr. Authentic Thai Cuisine now or I I can do sushi now, you know. And Asian Americans are completely cut out of that process. And then we, you know, have these online, you know, Yelp brigade saying don't eat that this full restaurant this guy is not authentic he's white he doesn't you know i feel that in my bones like i i don't like seeing white chefs passing themselves off as authentic asian chefs and but i'm not sure how to square that with this i think it's a reaction against uh race it's a it's a bile against race essentialism because let's uh let's let's take let's Okay, the white guy who goes to Japan and learns uh, the art and craft of sushi making comes back and sets up shop. Uh, mm. I, I don't have a doubt in my mind that he actually could go to Japan and learn the craft and crank out credible sushi, right? We're not talking about the mechanics mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy can make sushi, probably. if he's. It, I, I assume it's rigorous enough that he would be. it would be up to standard and he would know what he's doing. The difference is, what mm-hmm. if one of us were to go to Japan, learn sushi making, and come back and set up shop? Would we get that same level of credibility or authenticity? You know, I mean, it would be authentic, but that's because we're essentialized as Asian. Like, of course, they'd make credible sushi. They're Asian, right? The yeah. fact that you are Chinese yeah. or that I'm Korean would not matter. We're Asian, and so yeah, of course, we're now background yeah. players in our own uh, in our own endeavor here. Whereas the white guy gets to stand out for being an individual. So when, when we're talking about appropriation like that, I think that we're we're actually railing against the fact that we cannot be seen as individuals who have gone out of our out of our comfort zones, out of our proficient, you know, out of our own native proficiencies to go learn this craft and bring it back. And we should be respected for the individualism that we displayed and being able to learn and adapt and uh, and replicate this ancient art mm-hmm. for an audience here. You get what I'm saying? So I think I in do. talking like. Like for what David Chang is doing, I think he's bringing the individual back to this. He's showing that, uh, yeah, we're Asians, but we're but we're people. We're thinking this through. This matters at an individual level as much as it matters mm-hmm. at a cultural level, right? Mm-hmm. So, to, and he makes and he does and in the pizza episode. That's the only one I watched, so that's the only one I can refer to. 
Uh, he makes that point by leveraging two white guys, two Italians, to talk that through mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that would fall flat if it were two Asian Americans talking through that same problem. But it's two white guys, for all intents and purposes, they are they are they would be seen as white to the audience, talking through issues of personhood and authenticity, who they are as Italian Americans, or as they say, like American Italians, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who are invested in this uh, particular uh, craft, pizza making, that mm-hmm. has that that at this point has nothing to do with the homeland, but they are right. still committed to it at an individual level, and there's cultural buy-in for what they're producing. But it's bringing the individual back into these cultural artifacts and using that as the leverage against uh, against cries of inauthenticity or you know respect mm-hmm. for culture or anything like that. Yeah, I uh, the way I view these things is like. Uh, you know, I've I've thought of, I don't think that there's any I don't think there's any like objective criteria for cultural appropriation. I think like so many things like like beauty, like humor, and now with authenticity, I think these are really matters of like social power or social um, like social agreement. And there's really no objective basis or, or or standard for what is considered cultural appropriation and what is not. I think it's really just a matter of like how many people think it is, right? Like how many people are willing to agree that California wines cannot be labeled the same as French wines or something like, yeah, we've got to think of them as separate products or something, you know? And the more people just agree like that, you know, Asian stuff is, you know, like a white person doing Asian stuff is really not cool. Is there like, like, I think the more we think like, is there some sense, like, is there some fundamental reason as to why that's true? The more we look for that objective standard, the more this debate is just going to be as frustratingly confusing as it already has been. I think like beauty, like humor, like it's just a matter of what people, how people vote and how, they, you know, how individuals think of it. And, you know, when it comes to this stuff, I feel like Asian Americans for some reason have been very outspoken about it. I'm not necessarily bothered by that, but I think the more we reach for some, like, oh, truth is on our side, which, by the way, I think Ugly Delicious does a good job of this is not being conclusory about it, but that the more we think like truth has to be on our side on this, the more we run into fundamental problems of hypocrisy. Right. Because there's so many things that we assume that we can take from Western culture without being questioned. And so, you know, I do think it just it's it's just a matter of Asian America. I think it's a matter of Asian people kind of saying like, yo, we need to put up some fencing around cultural property here, like for ourselves. Like we've got to stop being like just so willfully, cheerfully surrendering cultural property and cultural ownership here. You know, on what basis we feel entitled. That's it. You know, like. It, what 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 are the rules around cultural appropriation? I don't think there are any. I'm just telling you, we don't like it. We're gonna brigade you on Yelp if you start acting like you know what's up with you know bun mi and and what a good bun mi flavor is or something like that. I don't fucking know, but you know you know what I mean. I think yeah. it's a social battle at the end of the day. I mean, can it be boiled down to dollars and cents? Like you brought up right. the AOC regulations, right? That's that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's to protect French cultural property, right? Cheeses, wines, yes. etc. Right. Yes. Uh, but that's that's economic. That's to guarantee that French products are given their brand, uh, are uh, their brand equity does not get diluted with um, other other brands like California Cabernets or Wisconsin mm-hmm. blue cheeses or something. I think it's like I think there's also a matter of national identity and pride at stake there too. I mean, I, I think French do care about things like that. I, I do. I. Of course, yeah, this is what they pride themselves on. I mean, it's and they're justified. I don't mean it to say, is it just dollars and cents, right? It's there is an economic component to it, but that is driven by nationalist sentiment that this is 
our shit that we are protecting uh, so that the world can value it for what it is. Yeah. For Asian Americans, we're in a different position. I can't claim ownership over Japan, right? Like kimonos and sushi or what have you. And for that matter, a lot of what's currently seen as Korean culture, my family left that long before that took root. So how much ownership, how much pride can I reasonably feel about these cultural artifacts that are being produced in a country that uh, I have, uh, I mean, I have strong family ties there, but it's still something that I did not grow up with and my parents did not grow up with it either. So they weren't able to transmit that down to me. This is something that just happened within the last like 20 years or so. So when we're talking about protectionism, what are we protecting? I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. Right. But for, for, uh, for Asian Americans, I think the turf is different. We don't have our own turf here. I think, I'm mean, like you said, like we can leave a bad Yelp review, but that's on, on what basis? Like if we eat it and it's, it's bun me, but it has, I don't know, Miracle Whip instead of, you know, Vietnamese mail, right? Like, was it good? Well, I think I, I don't that, know. See, uh, I, see I'm, I'm just having a hard time. Uh-huh. I understand it at a visceral level, but at a practical level, how to leverage that into action, into action <laughs> is still point, right? a, a mystery to me. Yeah. And then the point is clear. So we don't get, we don't risk further encroachment, right? You don't want, you don't want us to be seen as like open territory, for other people to plunder that's you know colonialism but it's but it's also like where are we putting the fences what what is inside that fence i don't have a clear vision of that yeah i mean i don't either and i think that if the the more we come at it from that angle like okay there's something like there is some uh inherent right that we have as Asians, even non-Vietnamese Asians, towards the definition of what Vietnamese food is, like, it just gets tricky. I mean, I think that's the general feeling, but I think it gets tricky. I think really, you just simply, like, to me, what it is, is like, these are just opportunities for Asian people in America to express, like, a a bit of, like, racial mocking of other people. And... You know, part of it is like it's so often. You mean like it, leveraging like insider making. knowledge to make everyone else feel like Hicks? Because I say that a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, basically, just like these people. Like, look at this white dude trying to sell like authentic pho and with all these stupid aphorisms about what a proper pho chef should say or do. Like, it's just a sort of like, look, you're gonna try that shit. We're just gonna mock you. You know, and what what's the ba- like? The question is like, oh, why? You know, we get to these questions like, oh, why can't a white guy do this? It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter why. It's just, you know, we've learned, I think, over time that you get mocked for reasons that have nothing to do with any like rational reason other than sort of like power plays, you know, racial power. Do you think the fear might, uh, there's also a slight fear. What if they can do it better than we can? So honestly, I actually got that sense from Isle of Dogs. I went to go see it with uh, one Asian American, uh, a guy, not that that, I don't think that it matters, but at the end, you know, we, we grabbed ice cream and we were just talking it out. And, uh, and, you know, he was a little pensive about it, but then, and then we talked it through and then, and then, but one of the things that caught my attention was, uh, he was pointing out an, an Asian American would not have been able to make this movie. Right. Right. Like he, this, this, like, what does it say about us that this white guy, this white director was able to lovingly gaze upon Japan with more care than probably the average American, Asian American could muster for it. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, there, there's, uh, you know, the most famous Thai chef in America is a white guy. The, the pot, that pot does rankle. Name. For, yeah, it him. rankles, and I think that 
uh, you know, there's not, but there's nothing like there's no principle that that breaks. Like, there's no reason why the top Thai chef in America does has to be Thai or Asian for that yeah. matter. Like, I, but I mean, I, mean like, I know that that rankles, but I can't say think of like a the reason why that's kind of Thai be. chef in America is Chinese, right? Like, that would probably piss off like Thai people to know that the most acclaimed Thai chef in America is actually a Chinese guy, right? Probably. Yeah, an, but in America, about white be like, that's even more. But there's something about white that's even more offensive. Sure, I have to say. like yeah, you know, or more threatening. Let's put it that way, because you know that there's a racial component to it, and you know, Chinese and Thai are seen as the same race in America, right? So there's, I think that there, yeah, you're right. I think there is a there's an insecurity there about do like, and this goes back to what I was saying. Like, do we basically have any communal cultural property at all that we can call our own? And I think that this commonality between Asian Americans to like, as a Chinese guy, to like dislike the cockiness of a white pho chef in Philadelphia telling Vietnamese people how to eat pho, right, is kind of just, you know, it's not really to me, it feels like we're defending some kind of property, but really what it is to me is like us proving to ourselves that we will, there are some social dynamics that we're willing to protect each other on, you know, and I as a Chinese guy seeing a white guy encroaching on, you know this the 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 Vietnamese culture of the pho shop, which is pretty deep in the Vietnamese American community, right? Like that's kept a lot of Vietnamese business, you know, Vietnamese neighborhoods alive. Um, that if we can feel or understand that 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 struggle is kind of common to us, it just gives us a way to be like, you know, to 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 collaborate on social enforcement. You know, and so I think the thing that really frustrates us is the ease with which white people can come and just basically invade your social space. And there's almost no fencing put around that. Whereas the opposite, all we see is fencing. It's a very like one way kind of invasion. Like we can't invade, but they can invade ours, I think is the feeling. But doesn't it come back to uh, individual agents protectionism? Like, like going back to like Ugly Delicious, the pizza episode. Yeah. Uh, pizza at large, it was it's shown it's uh, anyone does it right. Everyone has a version of pizza, right? There's a million different mm-hmm. kinds out there doing it a million different yeah. ways. But where you do see protectionism yeah. is like that Pepe's guy, and I think it was an intentional inclusion into into the show where the uh, the Lucali guy. Um, uh, is asking about the ingredients and he says, oh yeah, imported tomatoes from Italy. And then he asks, so do you spice them? And he's like, I can't tell you that. Right? So there's right. a little like barbed mm-hmm. exchange between the two. Like pizza is not protected, but that individual recipe is. That that one thing from this one restaurant, that's absolutely, you are not going to encroach on that. So is that the lesson here? That's no, that we're taking it away from just big cultural artifacts. We're not talking about pho. We're talking about one region or one shop's version of pho that we will be pissed off at if some white guy steals a recipe from uh, from Viet- from that one place in Vietnam and, and replicates it in Chicago. I, I think it's kind of like this. I, I think it goes back to what you were saying originally about are we worried that they can do it better, right? Mm. And usually if they do do it better, we'll say, well, but it's not authentic anymore. Like, it's okay, fine. It's really good, I admit, but it's not. It's no longer the thing, right? Well, there's another element to that. By better, for as far as food goes, uh, I am really chafed when uh, something is called elevated by incorporating French techniques, 
right? You probably yeah, see yeah. this too, right? Yeah, like course. it's it's course, authentic yeah. but elevated by using you know traditional French sous vide techniques, you know immersion and slow, like all that crap, right? It's assumed that brushing up against France or Italy or someplace everywhere but England, uh, kind of lifts it up out of the savage backwater it came from, right? But you know, I do think that at some level we got used to we there was a certain comfort that we took in in pointing out this double standard. I, I feel like as we've gotten to a point as Asian Americans that we especially the ones that like write about this or talk about this, we've gotten used to that complaint as being as giving us a certain kind of moral backing to say, look at the built-in ways in which you still assume that French culture is superior to anything Asian. I think though that the the current the elevation of a lot of Asian stuff, particularly Japanese, into even a higher realm than French culture, and I think that's happening, right? I think the most expensive cuisine in, in New York City now is Japanese, right? Yeah. Um same here in, in LA. I, I think that actually with Isle of Dogs, with you know, that that kind of thing, I think you're dead on you're you're spot on in the sense that we will find actually my my prediction is like the more Asian culture gets elevated into its own you know level of you know it's it, it elevates itself let's say without the help of incorporating french stuff that will actually cause asian americans more anxiety than the convenience of being able to point out the ways in which asian cultures has been subordinated to you know say european culture because we always had that we always had that uh, that sort of authenticity to slice at it with like we could always mock them to say, yeah, but come on, you're not, you know, this is just like a white version of stuff. It doesn't even taste good. Like you guys don't know how to eat that stuff. The day when Americans broadly know how to eat Asian food properly and are not scared off by some of the dishes that we like that are not, you know, when they fully do, if they're ever able to fully appreciate, you know, Korean or Chinese or uh, Japanese or Thai or Filipino food the way we do at home is going to be a day that's going to cause a lot of anxiety in Asian Americans. Yeah, that blows the lid off of the uh, the the two worlds that we live in. Honestly, yeah. uh, I mean, I grew up kind of yeah. Like you go home and there's a texture to that life, right? There's the authentic. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't even say it's quote authentic, but it's the lived experience of being Asian, right? And it's authentic mm -hmm. by not being concerned with authenticity, right? It's the it's the recipes my mom pulled together because she was too busy and the fridge was empty. And, you know, this is how spam fried rice came happened to our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not obsessed with authenticity. But then to see, like, those flavors and, and that, that the casualness, to see it be treated so casually that it's incorporated into, like, a white family's dinner in Kansas, that would be a moment mm -hmm. of some sadness for me. The secret, yeah, exactly. And I think... When you and I are having this conversation is to me, you know, a double edged it's double edged in the sense that yeah, it sucks in a way, but on the other hand, that is acceptance and assimilation. Yeah. Right? Like it's not this unalloyed good. Like there it's it you you and I now are having the same conversation basically that those two Italian dudes were having in in the in the pizza yeah. episode of Ugly Delicious. You know, where we're kind of like bemoaning the progress almost. I think so. Yeah, there's a. I mean, we've talked about this before too. But like, I wrote that piece about about uh, Korean beauty, right? Yeah, uh, I can. Yeah. I mean, I think it deserves. Like, I can still recall how I felt the first time I passed a Sephora, and saw this beautiful Korean girl, and then you know, and and they're loudly advertising that Korean beauty was not going to be sold at Sephora, 
right? Part of me mm-hmm. felt like this was like a conversion of two worlds here, you know, like the mm-hmm. like I stepped into an alternate dimension, but I never quite left the other one. Right, I never expected right. the worlds to kind of merge in this particular way. B, I didn't feel ready for it in a very critical sense. Mm-hmm. Like it was mm-hmm. it was sad. I I really liked it's part of my childhood to go with my mom to go to Neiman Marcus and drop, you know, drop money on the high-end stuff, but then also haul mm-hmm. ass all the way across town to like Koreatown or so, or uh, Little Tokyo or someplace and go to a dimly lit grocery store and like mm-hmm. grab weirdly mm-hmm. weird like tubes of crap off the back shelves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like to suddenly have it be and, and honestly the products that are on the shelves now are not what were what what I grew up with, right? They were glo- they're prettier, they're slick, cutting edge uh, branding. Right, it's very much packaged mm-hmm. for this Western audience, even though the roots are right. are Asian. So there right. was something lost in that in that shift here, and I and I'm totally behind sure. them becoming global juggernauts in this and taking and you know shaking up the game in white beauty standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but there was but something there was something lost for me, just just yeah. for me and people yeah. like me, right? So this is a this is a concern that probably dies with us, basically. That this little world that 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 formed that formed us has now been there's a, a harsh light shining on it. There there was a very similar thing that happened to me recently, where or on for some reason on social media there was suddenly this like you know mini viral spread in in like Asian Asian social media about um, a cough syrup called pipagal. Pipagal is like uh, loquat syrup. It's this disgusting oh, yeah. black thick syrup that my parents used to always give me. It was like Chinese Robitussin, right? Yeah, I have and a bottle of it sitting it, in my in my cupboard right now. You have it, right? Like, no one ever talked... It's funny because it's, like, pretty widespread. A lot of Asian people use it. They never talked about it because it was like, yeah, this is shit. Like, yeah, that's gross. And suddenly it became this thing and uh, someone linked... Um, I said something. I said something like, "Oh yeah, you know, countdown to a white hipster makes a cocktail out of it," and someone immediately responded like, "Oh, actually, no, it's been done already." And there's this guy <laughs> that he's got like a you know cocktail craft cocktail blog, and he was like, "Hey, look what I found." You know, my Asian friends tell me that this is like really you know treasured secret shit, and it's made of low quats, and I thought I'd make like a bourbon fizz out of it or something. I don't know what the fuck it was, and I was like, "There you go." Like you know, I gotta say. I was keeping that one in the back, <laughs> in my back pocket, but now it's it's gone. Like everyone knows about Peapagal now, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of a well, loss. But on the other hand, I don't know. My, my dad, my dad always uh, chased it with a shot of vodka anyway. So I don't know. Do you want to? Uh, we can reclaim that one. Yeah, but that's just how my yeah, dad yeah, rolled. Doing it wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, didn't, he, so, he didn't have a fucking mint leaf on it somewhere, right? He just, oh God, no! He didn't <laughs> blog about it. Let's see. and so we talk about disrespect when it comes to that Uh but i like there is no way to 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 respectfully do this right this is very much pulling something out of its native sphere and Mm -hmm. putting it making it perform in a different context right so we always leave that little out like if it's respectfully done we'll be okay with it but honestly the very act of it is it's it's disrespectful of its origins, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like grave robbing or something, right? You're disturbing mm-hmm. where it originally was to kind of to kind of put it, it put a spotlight on it somewhere else, right? Like a to- you grab mm-hmm. a tombstone mm-hmm. out of Egypt and put it in a museum in Britain, right? It feels kind of like that, uh, yeah. but at the same time, like this is this is just the way forward too. If it's not if it's not white people, honestly, it would be like our kids, 
right? Who see mm-hmm. this, like, they would see that that weird black bottle on your shelf and they'd take a swig from it and be like, holy fuck. And then come back to it like 10 years later, like this would go excellently with some, you know, aged scotch or something, right? There's a mixing yeah, up, yeah. reincorporate. There's a disrespect for its origins that you kind of need to push mm-hmm. the needle, to move the needle forward. You have to kind of not give a yeah. shit where it originally came from, right? Yeah. I think this really raises some I think I mean going forward I think this is where the the whole conversation is at now or should be at which is you know I do think that there is this conception of a- ethnic identity Asian American identity that is very protective it's it's very much built around not being understood it's very much built around the celebration of not being welcome or not being understood or or being you know or you know oriental like you know, orientals that people don't get. Like, although we say that we hate that and we do, on the other hand, we find comfort in that identity, that communal identity, right? Mm-hmm. This mutual, this sharing of not being understood. They, it, it comes up in that, in Ugly Delicious, uh, when they talk about, you know, it pisses me off when white, white, white chefs make money selling Korean food because it's like you didn't suffer the ridicule of bringing like, kimchi to lunch at school and being told yeah. you you know you're you're stinky you know there is this sort of shared identity of like hey we were mocked let's let's therefore that that you know that let's bond on that basis and when you lose that when people do suddenly respect your culture and and suddenly value your culture it's this weird form of an invasion of a identity that was really much built up around marginalization. And the more we see ourselves being accepted or Asian culture being accepted, which is apparently what we've been asking for this whole time, right? If we get what we want, I feel like that's a double-edged sword. You know, like when you it get is, what you want, It is, and there hasn't been be enough careful. recognition. And when we're talking about a sim, like the fight against assimilation, we're not actually talking about whether our kids grow up knowing Chinese or whatever, right? That That's not what we're actually talking This is what we're talking about. Yeah. The li- lived experience with these th- these elements of culture and what we do with them, yeah. Yeah. right? And I mean, as long as we're here, we are going to assimilate. Each generation is going to be is going to be a little bit different from the one that came before, right? Globally, mm-hmm. and also within our little Asian American community. And that's just the, mm-hmm. the name of the game. I know, like, recently my mom gave me a piece of furniture, right? It was a big chest. It was, it's it's very old. It's from, like, the 17th century. Uh, it's carved Damn. wood. It's got original brass wow. fittings and everything. It's yeah. a family heirloom? And, like, mm-hmm. and I didn't, like, it's so, it's it's rare. It's valuable. It's beautiful. So I didn't know what the fuck to do with it. So I put, like, a decorative fan and an inkwell on it. Like, a, like, a, like an <laughs> antique, like, korean ink one like yeah i'm gonna just like korean the shit up out of this and then my mom comes over and she's like what the fuck are you doing like what i'm trying to respect this shit what like no i gave it to you so you can store your valuable documents in it what in the caucasity are you doing lady oh my god and like this thing is built like a safe right (laughs) it's it's very thick wood it's it's fire resistant you know it's lacquered and everything uh it's getting old but it's like Mm -hmm. but it's solid right it's meant to be and she's like no this is shit that i gave it to you for you to use not to like decorate your damn house (laughs) and i'm like i'm just trying to be korean here it's a fear i i don't i don't at all uh i i completely like empathize with the I guess with the fear and anxiety of like where it leaves you 
um, in terms of like any sort of group identity. You know, I think that's ultimately what is lost and what those two Italians were bemoaning, right? Is like as you assimilate, you lose group identity. You lose yeah. any feeling of being different or special as opposed to the, you know, just sort of the mainstream ugliness and blandness of American culture. And mm-hmm. when I see Asian culture being incorporated into American culture, it's always kind of it's always there's something taken out of it. There's something like, you know, the color is sort of bleached out of it in a way. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, I don't like yeah, I don't really particularly love seeing it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know the resolution, but I do. I do feel that the the more we 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 got to start questioning what we're demanding, you know. And like, I do think we've gotten very comfortable behind our complaints. Meaning, if those complaints actually went away, then what are we? <laughs> you know. And we're starting to see that a little bit. I thought Eye of Dogs was a little bit like that. It's like, what happens when they do appropriate your shit, but they do it so well. What do we have left if that's taken away from us? I know, like, there was a boba shop that I grew up with. It was open till, like, 4 a.m. when I was, so I went there all the time to go study and, and then, you know, like, before AP exams or what have you. It was the tackiest place, like, f- like fluorescent lighting, uh, crappy, like, like Japanese and Taiwanese, like, uh, vending machines in the corner, you know, for the little toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. menu was absolutely illegible at, like there's a karaoke machine, you know, it was, it was just tacky, right? Yeah. Like you would never bring somebody uh, whose opinion you cared about uh, unless they were also Asian and got it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And But this is like my childhood. So I, I loved it for its own thing. And it was unapologetically Asian. Like none of the none of the waitstaff spoke English, right? So, uh, so this was very much for Asians and Asian Americans who could, who relished this particular uh, uh, zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then recently, and I didn't go for a long time, and then I recently went back, and the uh, the children of the original owners had taken over and completely remodeled the place. So now it looks mm-hmm. very much Instagram friendly, you know, the the tasteful lighting, the uh, the natural wood of like countertops and tables and the subway tile. The menu is perfectly laid out, you know, an elegant typography. Uh, a lot of it, it, it just, it changed. It's still the same. It's still a boba shop, yeah. but by making themselves so... Uh, but now more people will get it. It's not just you and your friends that get it now. It's like everyone is going to be able to get it. Yeah, now. yeah. That kind of thing. So th- there was something, and I, and I remember going and like the reviews for it are glowing, like, like oh, this used to be the, the worst place. You know, I was, I was embarrassed to go there, but it was on the way to school. Uh, and like now I can finally bring, you know, friends and, and, and friends and family and over to it and I can be proud of it, right? And part of me yeah. was really sad yeah. by comments like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And some comments were, of course, like, "Oh no, this is fucking bullshit. This this needed to have been just the way it wasn't in the '90s. Uh, like, this is yeah, I hate yeah. this." You know. So the usual yeah. you would the usual mix of responses you would see from uh, from Asian Americans about stuff like this. So I think that's yeah. the front line of assimilation. The fact is, like, the needle is it's not going to be the same, and I don't think we should want it to be the same. Mm-hmm. But I think I think it's just up to a personal decision. Are you are you okay with losing yourself in that mainstream? Are you are you so embarrassed by this that that uh, you don't feel a loss by this by what happened mm. between the transition between the nineties and today? Right? Mm. Do you feel a loss about it or not? And I think that informs what we decide to protect and what we decide to to leave behind. So when we're talking about assimilation, For it's sure. about it's about the desire 
to sublimate yourself in the mainstream. And everyone's kind of saying, no, there is something lost by that. Whatever you gain is one thing, but there is something very real that you are no longer going to be able to tap back into once you reach that frontier. I think that's a good place to stop. That was a like ending on that sentiment, I think, is kind of perfectly uh, sort of encapsulates, I think, the the way I feel about it as well. Um, and that got me thinking about the 90s. Huh. We should do a 90s yeah, yeah, pod yeah. soon. We should, we should do a 90s one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so that's um, that's the end of our episode. Uh, make sure to subscribe to Escape from Plan A because I think that really helps us. Um, you know, if you like the podcast, uh, tell friends about it and also subscribe through your podcast app. We're available everywhere. And what would be really helpful is if you go and rate us on iTunes, five stars, obviously, because again, uh, that's the best way you can uh, help support Escape from Plan A. Thanks. I get it. I can't compete with an Asian chick. I can't. They're better. I've been thinking about this. I did the math. I know that's their thing, but I did it. I've been thinking about it. I can't win. How can I compete with an Asian chick? They're smarter. They have naturally silky hair. They laugh like this because they know men hate when women speak. They're better. They're just better. And how do they bring it on home for the win? Oh, the smallest vaginas in the game. 